Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Amanpour. Here's what's coming up. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. American allies aghast after Trump invites Putin to invade NATO countries. I get reaction from independent U.S. Senator Angus King. Then... Alayla, this is an operation that we have been preparing for a while. Israel rescues two hostages and the death toll in Gaza shoots up. I speak to Israeli charity CEO Yael Noy about carrying on her mission to help sick Palestinians. And Netanyahu targets Rafa even as Biden urges restraint. Journalist Sarah Helm joins me on what could be coming. Plus, we've never looked at the most dramatic retirement in the world. Life after power. Author Jared Cohen talks to Walter Isaacson about presidents finding purpose after leaving the White House. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Christiane Amanpour in London. As Vladimir Putin continues his quest to control Ukraine, Donald Trump gives the Kremlin leader a green light to invade America's own allies. The GOP presidential frontrunner raised alarms in Washington and around the world after saying this. One of the presidents of a big country stood up and said, well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay, you're delinquent. He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You gotta pay. You gotta pay your bills. And the money came flowing in. NATO's leader stepped in with some quick damage control. He said Trump is putting Europe and America at risk. This as U.S. lawmakers worked over the weekend trying to get an aid bill passed for Ukraine and Israel. President Biden says the failure of Congress to support Ukraine would amount to criminal negligence. The president is also growing publicly more frustrated with the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, calling operations in Gaza over the top. Independent Senator Angus King spent the weekend with colleagues working on this foreign aid bill just days after making an impassioned speech on the Senate floor. Whenever people write to my office, they say, why are we supporting Ukraine? I answer, Google Sudetenland 1938. You could, we could have stopped a murderous dictator who was bent on geographic expansion at that time. I say we, the West, at a relatively low cost, the result of not doing so was 55 million deaths. That chapter has haunted me because it echoes so strongly in what's happening now 
in Ukraine. And Senator King, welcome now to the program. That was a very, very dramatic and historically focused comment. And I wonder what your colleagues, you know, said to you about that, or do you think it will focus them to eventually pass this aid bill? Well, I got good. I got a good response from my colleagues. Uh, a lot of them saw it, or they saw the video of it, and uh, most of them agree. Uh, when I say most. Last night, we got, I think, 67 votes to move forward on the supplemental bill. That's a pretty good indication of solid bipartisan support. And uh, I'm deeply hopeful that that support will continue over the next couple of days as we work through this process uh, to get this bill, this crucial bill, passed. It, it, as you point out, this is historically important. It would be a catastrophe if the United States walked away from Ukraine in this situation. It would embolden Putin, it would embolden Xi Jinping, it would uh, undermine the confidence of our allies. Uh, there, there could not be a worse mistake in the 21st century than uh, walking away, quitting on Ukraine. Senator King, you said about embolden, emboldening adversaries like Putin. So what is your assessment? How did you take Trump's comment, which we played at a campaign rally? Uh, essentially, he used the word encourage Putin to do whatever the hell he likes. Well, when I first saw it, I thought it was a joke. Uh, I thought it was some, you know, parody or AI generated fake. I mean, I can't imagine someone saying like saying that. The essence of our national security strategy for 80 years has been deterrence. The best war is the one that's never fought. And the way to avoid fighting a war is your adversaries know that they will face overwhelming results and consequences if they uh, commit aggression. To have said something like that, which basically he said to Putin, I don't care what the hell you do if they haven't chipped in adequately, according to his standards, uh, is, is unbelievable. I mean, it just sort of, it, it completely undermines the concept of deterrence because it's not only deterrence, it's an, it's an invitation. And by the way, by the way, on, in terms of support for Ukraine, I often hear around here, well, we're doing too much, the Europeans aren't doing enough. As a percent of GDP, we are 15th in the world in terms of our support for Ukraine. Number 15, virtually all the European countries are ahead of us. I think Estonia is contributing something like five times as a percent of their GDP mm. than we are. So this idea that the, that the European countries aren't stepping up, aren't participating, as I said on the floor that day, is just bunk. Mm. And, and actually, just a, a week or so ago, the Europeans very conspicuously stepped in with a $50 billion or euro aid package for Ukraine, while, uh, I'm sorry to say, you in the United States are still fumbling around. Can I, I know that you're trying to get them to pass it, but I want to ask you more about this uh, Trump quote. You know, the Secretary General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, doesn't usually quickly rush out to talk about internal, you know, U.S. policy or statements by, by you know, by, by candidates. But he did immediately step out and in a prepared statement said that any suggestion that allies will not defend each other undermines all of our security, including that of the U.S., and puts American and European soldiers at increased risk. So that's that point. I want to ask you whether, like some of Trump's defenders, do you think that was just a Trumpian crazy comment on a campaign? Or do you believe that Trump should be taken at his word, given that he is the front runner, uh, you know, 
uh, uh, for the GOP. Another quote I used in that speech that you played a clip of was Maya Angelou, who once said, if someone tells you who they are, you should believe them. He told us who he was. He told us what his policy would be. He's been threatening one way, shape or form to get out of NATO uh, since he was in the presidency. So uh, I, I, th this comment was shocking and, uh, as I say, pretty much unbelievable, but it's consistent with the direction that he's been moving ever since. It goes this whole idea of America first. You know, that has echoes from the 1930s. Uh, and that means we don't keep our commitments. We don't side with our allies, but NATO has worked. It held the Soviet Union in check for 70, 60, 70 years, and to undermine the confidence that our allies have, and also to invite aggression uh, from Vladimir Putin is, is, uh, is the sheerest folly. I, I, I've, uh, as you can see, I'm, I'm sort of, for a U.S. Senator, I'm sort of speechless. It, it was really an amazing, appalling statement. You know, as you heard, President Biden, along with the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, essentially said that if the Senate uh, doesn't approve the foreign aid package, it's close to criminal neglect. Um, Republican Mitch McConnell, the minority leader in the Senate, made a big appeal. Uh, you know, GOP Mitch McConnell made a big appeal over the weekend. Just take a listen. I know it's become quite fashionable in some circles to disregard the global, the global interests we have as a global power. To bemoan the responsibilities of global leadership, this is the idle work for idle minds, and it has no place in the United States Senate. I mean, again, that's pretty direct commentary and advice to the Senate, of which you are a member, of course, and you were probably there when he was saying that. So we talked a little bit about whether you think this bill is actually going to get through. Well, uh, number one, I was there when he made that speech, and it was a very powerful speech. And as I say, uh, there's strong bipartisan support. We got 67 votes last night. I think we could be headed toward a, even a, a more lopsided vote in the next few days. I certainly hope so. Uh, but are we going to get it done? I think so. Here's what's going on now. And as is typical in many pieces of major legislation, both sides have amendments that they'd like to raise. In order to process amendments, you have to have a time agreement because under the arcane rules of the Senate, each amendment theoretically could take hours and in fact even days before you would get to a vote on the amendment. So it involves a little bit of comity, a little bit of cooperation to say, okay, we're going to do the amendments, but we're going to collapse the time. Right now, several of the members uh, are saying we're not going to cooperate, we're not going to collapse the time, we're going to require this, you know, for, to go for weeks. Um, and I think once that happens, if, if indeed that's what happens, we may end up moving to this bill without amendments, which would be a shame. But I think the people who want the amendment should be the ones saying, hey, let's make a reasonable arrangement here so we can get this thing done. Mm -hmm. And can I switch a little bit to, you know, another very, very difficult war, and that's the one in the Middle East, which increasingly President Biden uh, and, and his team are, are publicly expressing frustration with their ally Netanyahu in Israel and urging restraint on civilians and a proper workable plan to remove any civilians from Gaza out of harm's way. How that would happen is 
is difficult to say. But, you know, even the British Foreign Secretary has said, you know, that, that, that they are very, very concerned. What do you think U.S. policy should be right now on this issue, given the, according to the, you know, the, the Palestinian Health Authorities, you know, there's 20, 20 nearly 28,000 dead, including children in Gaza since October 7th? Well, th three weeks ago yesterday, I was in Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, uh, in a meeting with him, you know, directly across the table and made the same point. One of the points I made was the bombing that you're now doing is is harming Israel and civilians more than Hamas. It's counterproductive. And the same goes with their uh, sort of half-baked uh, lack of cooperation with, with uh, humanitarian aid. Now we're talking about an attack on Rafah. You've got to remember that uh, a month and a half, two months ago, the Israelis were saying, move out of Gaza City, move south to the civilians, move to the south of Gaza, because we're going to concentrate and get Hamas. The civilians did that, and now they're talking about attacking the very regions where the civilians went uh, in order to seek safety. Uh, I understand the president's frustration. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, if he were here, we'd say, he would say the, the Israeli people are shocked and horrified by what happened on October 7th, the worst attack on the, the Jewish people since the Holocaust. In Israel, it's still October 7th. Mm -hmm. that, that horrendous act is still reverberating. However, what the, Israeli, the, the Israelis need to go after Hamas, but the question is how to do it and how to minimize civilian casualties because, and this is what I said to Netanyahu, I said, you may be winning on the ground, and I'm not even sure that's happening now, you may be winning on the ground, but you're losing the information war. Mm -hmm. And this uh, bombing of, of civilians, uh, finagling with aid, and, and those kinds of things are not doing Israel any good. I said this as a friend of Israel, as a supporter of Israel, but uh, this is a very difficult situation. One idea that I've suggested to the White House is that we move a, a, a one or two hospital ships to the Mediterranean mm -hmm. on, the, on the side of Gaza. Gaza borders the Mediterranean. Let's move those hospital ships there so important health care can be provided without Hamas being in the basement. And uh, I think that's a way that the United States could make a really significant contribution. Yeah, and one of your allies, France, has done that, and, and it has, actually has worked. So that, that would be interesting to see. Can I just finally ask you, because it looks like it's going to be a Biden-Trump matchup, uh, Bob Bauer, who's President Biden's personal lawyer, said the special counsel report about Biden's memory went, quote, quote off the rails. So from your perspective, as an independent, when it comes to November, what do you think voters will, will think? Are they going to be focused on Biden's age or Trump's volatility and the kind of things that, that he said about Russia and the like? I think the answer is both. There's no question from just talking to people, polls, all the information that people are concerned about the president's age. They are also concerned about the, uh, the nature of Donald Trump, what he's talking about doing the damage he would do to the country. So it is a concern. I think what Joe Biden has to do uh, between now and November is demonstrate to the American people that he hasn't lost a step, uh, that he's uh, able to uh, give and take and, and uh, work in an, in a, in an open and, and unrehearsed setting uh, and, and uh, convince them, the American people that he's, that he's still got it. Uh, that's going to be, it's, it's going to be the, an issue in the campaign. There's no reason to to uh, to deny it, 
and we'll just have to see how, uh, how and in what way the president uh, steps up. Senator Angus King, thank you very much indeed for joining us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. As we said, two hostages are free today after Israel conducted an overnight operation in Rafah to rescue them. The two men are dual Israel-Argentine nationals, and Argentina's new president thanked Israel. The operation also killed dozens of Palestinians in Rafah, and access to food, water, and medicine is growing increasingly limited. Before October 7th, Israeli charity Road to Recovery worked tirelessly to help take sick Palestinians, mostly children, from Gaza to Israeli hospitals. On October 7th, Hamas killed some of the volunteers amid the 1,200 Israelis who were slaughtered were women like Vivian Silva, who worked for this charity. But despite such horror, the charity is vowing to continue its work. Why? Well, CEO Yael Noy says that I'm fighting to be good. I'm fighting to stay moral. When both sides are in such terrible pain, I'm fighting to be the same person I was before. And she's joining us now from Tel Aviv. Yael Noy, welcome to the program and thank you for being with us. Um, I want to just start with that statement because it's pretty... It's pretty profound and goes to the heart of humanity. And I wonder how you have been able to keep your humanity after this horror that your friends and relatives and and people have been subjected to. I really don't know. I just couldn't stop. I thought um, I just must keep on doing what I'm doing because uh, otherwise I will driving nuts, you know. It was so such a terrible days, and we are still in those terrible days. So I think when I'm doing my job, I'm just um, taking care of myself, you know. Before even the Palestinians, I'm just um, taking care of our society to stay moral and, and good, because it's really, really hard in these days to do it. 
Tell me, what did you used to do, uh, just for our audience to understand, what did your group used to do before October 7th? We're doing the same now. We, we take a Palestinian that need to go to treatment in Israel, so we are picking them up from the checkpoints in the early morning to the hospital, and while they finish, we're they're calling us and we're taking them back to the checkpoint. So we did it with Gaza patient and also the West Bank patient. And since the 8th of October, we take just the people from the West Bank because we have no border with Gaza now. So, you know, just some of the stats. Before October 7th, your organization, Road to Recovery, ferried more than 1,500 Palestinian patients from Gaza and the West Bank to mm. hospitals inside mm. Israel every year. Um, and of course, you were taking them to aid that was completely unavailable for them in the Palestinian territories. And way back in, in May, before the attacks, you said, I couldn't live here without doing something. We live in such a complex and difficult reality. This is a tiny gesture I do in order to face this reality. I'm assuming from what you said, you stand by that now. But how has your relationship changed in the intervening months between yourself and those Palestinians who you are still helping, between you and your group? I don't think we change. We're still, we, I have a lot of friends also, or colleagues in Gaza and in the West Bank, and we keep on trying to be, I don't know enough to say friends, but we, to be neighbors, like a, a good uh, relationship between both of us because both of the society will stay here even after the war. So we are doing just the same. Sometimes in the ride while I'm taking, while I'm taking the patient, there is silence in the car and they sometimes even get sleep. But I think that the time that we are together is like seeds of hope for the other days that they know us and we know them and they, they will remember that we give us our hand even in those terrible times. And, and to remind people, many of the many of the Israelis who are in those villages and kibbutzes near the Gaza border have had mm. to be evacuated to other parts of. So you're doing mm -hmm. this, or many of your volunteers, even having been, uh, you know, forced to, to relocate. You have a, nep a couple of nephews mm. in the IDF, and your brother's a pilot um, in the Air Force. How does your family react? Mm. How do your Israeli friends who are not involved mm. in this work react to your continued outreach? Wow, I think this is the hardest thing because uh, with my family, with my brother, I try not to talk a lot about what I'm doing now because it's, it's very painful. You know, all of our society is so wounded now and I don't want to hurt anyone about talking about what I'm doing because I know some of them are really don't like it. So I I'm, I'm keep on doing it, but I'm more cautious when I'm talking about it in, to the Israeli society because some of them say now you have to choose a side. You cannot help the enemy, even though I don't think those patients that I'm taking, they are my enemy at all. But not all of the people in Israel can hear it right now. Mm. Yael, your own parents were hiding on October 7th. Mm -hmm. They uh, are from the kibbutz yeah. Alumim, which is one of those that was attacked. Mm. Uh, uh, tell us mm. how they managed to survive, how you felt, how that day went down for you. Wow. Listen, this was a terrible day, and I think uh, most of the day we didn't understand how 
how bad it is because my parents are religious so in the beginning in the morning their phone was closed they even don't put on the phone because they're not talking in the phone in Shabbat you know it's a, they're religious so after a few hours they understand they should open the phone and I talked to them and they said they are safe in the safe room but they are hearing things outside and we just asked them to stay safe and not to go out my father in the morning he even didn't know so he went to the synagogue you know he was just walking in the kibbutz and someone see him and said run away and so my parents were there in the safe room and we were driving nuts me and my sisters and my brother and we were just praying that it will end yeah, well, well we're very happy that for them it did end safely. You still have two members of Road to Recovery who are being held hostage. One of them is Oded Lifshitz, he's 83 years old, and Chaim Perry, who's 79. You know, do you think that, that you're gonna see them again? Wow, I'm praying for every day to you that they will be back, but uh, you know, I'm, we cannot uh, lose the hope. So we're just holding the hope and making the hope every day again and again. They must come back. Mm -hmm. I, I want to play this from you uh, for you. It was actually October 17th, so about 10 days after this. We had Sharon Lifshitz here in the studio for one of our, you know, several mm -hmm. interviews with her. And as we know, her mother mm -hmm. was one of the first, if not the first, to have been, uh, to have been uh, released early on. Uh, this is what she said about her father and his commitment. My father had very strong opinion about things, but he always felt that you make peace with enemies, um, that our job is to find a shared ground, I think grounded in humanity, and that there's no alternative. And I don't think history shows us that there is an alternative. And, and Yael, one of the ironies is that the people who were attacked were the very people who actually helped a lot with, with the Palestinians. And I wonder, uh, the people who were attacked by Hamas, and I wonder what you think now when you think of your patients, the people in Gaza, you see the death toll mounting, the injury toll, you know, skyrocketing. Do you hear anything from them? Are you able to contact? I mean, they, they clearly don't have access yeah. to the kind of help you were providing be before. No, we, we cannot help them, but uh, we're, I, f I think the most important thing that I can do now is to be a witness for their suffering, you know, and I'm talking with them and they call me and even my dad, he's in, in touch with one of the patients that he was, uh, he was taking a, a small child and he was taking her and her dad a lot to the hospitals in Israel and he's in touch now with, this, with her father and he, they're both worried for each other. So I, we cannot really help them. We tried to send medicine in the beginning of the war, but the medicine didn't get into, in, they didn't get them. So now I just can talk with them and say, I know what they're going through and I'm witness, you know, just to, to hold it, this with them. Mm. Yael Noy, Road to Recovery, thank you so much indeed for being with us and, and continuing thank your you important work. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks a lot.
Now, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu told ABC News this weekend that Rafah is, quote, the last bastion of Hamas. President Biden spoke to him for the first time in weeks and pressured him to ensure the safety of civilians there. Listen to one man say that he feels completely trapped now. If by some misfortune there's an invasion of Rafah, it means that two-thirds of the population will die. Everywhere else, there's always a way to get out and escape. But we can't get out of Rafah. We have no other alternative. Either we die here or we die in our homes. Either we die here or we die in our homes, he said. Journalist Sarah Helm knows Gaza well, having visited and worked there, and is sounding the alarm bell about the consequences of pushing into Rafah next. Welcome, Sarah, to the programme. Thank you. So you have spent a lot of time as a Middle East correspondent for The Independent. You've written a books and you've, you've, you've spent a lot of time in that region and specifically in Gaza. Yeah. Tell us what we need to know about Rafah now. What is the configuration? Where can people go? Okay. What can they do to get out of this? So Rafah has long been known as it's basically a border town. So it's right up against the border with Egypt to its south. The Sinai Desert literally blows in across Rafa. There are these huge, well, there used to be these huge sand dunes uh, on the edge of the town. Um, and then to its east is Israel. To its west is the sea. To its north is the rest of the Gaza Strip. So the, what has been happening over the last, um, since, since October, is that the Israeli army has pushed people south. Um, and the obvious intention in my view, has, and in many people's views, has been to gather everyone by the Rafa border in such a situation where they create such a horrific nightmare of crowds, million, more than a million people uh, pushed up against the border fence, very little access to humanitarian aid, and they will create a sense of desperation and hysteria that Egypt will have no choice but to open its border, and they will end up going through there. So, so let me ask you this, because that gentleman there said, uh, you know, we're, we're either going to die here or in our house, you know. Are you hearing from people there? Are you in touch with people there now? Yes, Because there am. is a sense of panic we're hearing. Um, I think it, the, one of the problems is that, that there isn't any international media on the ground. Mm. I speak to people as best I can. I speak to people outside who are Palestinians with family inside. They are brilliant at being in touch with each other. They have their ways. So I spoke, for example, to a very, very good friend last night, uh, who, a woman translator who's currently in America. And she uh, worked with her a lot. And um, she was her mother and her two sisters and their husbands and their small babies are all in Gaza. They lived in the middle area. She gave me a very different picture, not, not in, in any big sense, but just kind of a texture. So they had fled from their house in the middle area as everybody else had, to Rafa, And they'd set up their tent and they'd made their tent with old blankets and old towels and the babies had no nappies and everything that we've been hearing, desperation. Um, and the mother had said, actually, this is, we can't tolerate this. This is appalling. We're going to go back. So a few days ago, they walked back. Or they didn't walk. They walked some of the way. It's too far. They got a truck or something. And they made their way up the coast road back to the middle area. And they're back now home. OK, so this is interesting because the Israeli prime minister or, 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 or spokespeople have said, well, why don't they just go back to the north? We've cleared Hamas out of the north and 
maybe they're going to go back there. Is that actually possible? Maybe these people had houses left, but... Uh, well, I think it's a very, very mixed picture. I think it's very confused, and I think, you know, we're not getting a full picture. But when I, what I can gather, in the North, quite a lot of people didn't leave. Less mm -hmm. people than you think stayed. Now, what I'm told is that if you're wandering around and, and uh, this, you know, these people have huge connections, all the different groups of Palestinians in Gaza have set up their own sort of, in, if you like, WhatsApp groups. So mm -hmm. there's the Nusrat WhatsApp group. But it's not WhatsApp, it's their own version of it. Um, Rafa, Gaza, etc. So apparently, if you're in the north and if you're in Gaza City, you will probably find about three families living in each street, that kind of thing. Most of it is gone, most of it is destroyed, but a lot of them are just going back and living in the rubble. So I have asked people, so how are you feeding yourselves, particularly in the North? They are incredibly inventive, the Palestinians and the Gazans particularly, because they've had to be. And they, 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 you know, they're described as the greatest patcher-uppers in the world, because that's all they've ever done. And uh, so what they're now doing, which I hadn't heard before, is they're going, a lot of shops and a lot of stores were destroyed, and supermarkets even in Gaza City, by the rubble. They're going into the rubble of the stores and getting food out, tins, mm. pasta, rice, stuff that was in the stores that just went under the rubble. So they're doing that. And my friend, uh, who's in America at the moment, her little brother, is, have been, they've got home now, uh, he is deputed to go out and find food. And, and so, and which he enjoys because it's kind of something he contributes to the family's survival. But you know, they are living, there are drones over them all the time and bombs dropping sporadically still now. Um, but the other important thing to say about that was that, that I'm told that this middle area, there are very few Israelis in it. And they haven't... The is army, the middle area... Is that Gaza it's, it's, City area? No, it's south of, south Gaza, of Gaza City, city. Okay. but between Gaza City and Rafah. Right. So it literally is in the middle of the strip. And um, that the Israeli army has not yet pushed or has not pushed right through to the sea because mm -hmm. uh, the sea... So, so there's a sense of, of freedom there in a way, but of course there's no aid, no nothing. Um, although they're setting up little clinics. Now, her mother is, is, is a diabetic and she needs medicine. And, and I said, how is she doing? And she said, well, extraordinarily, there's a little clinic has reopened. And I said, who's running it? And she said, volunteers. So they're incredibly... So it's a total DIY situation. Total DIY situation. So in terms of your question about can people move back north, I don't think that the Israeli army or the prime minister or anyone has a clue what they're doing. Mm -hmm. The Palestinians in Gaza will do what they can if they think they can get back up north. Now, apparently, mm -hmm. when uh, this particular family went north on the sea road, I said, there must have been checkpoints. She said, no, there weren't. I mean, it was dangerous. Obviously, there are drones and there's mm -hmm. stuff going on all the time, but they got back. So I think some of them will start going back north, yes. You know, in your times that you were there, I wondered, did you have any encounters? Did you interview Hamas leaders? Yes, so, many. And what did they say about their essential inability to provide for the daily needs of the Palestinians? I mean, there were, there were protests by Palestinians in Gaza shortly before October 7th. And the fact that, you know, they've spent so much time being, quote unquote, resistance. But how, how could Hamas provide for the inhabitants? There's absolutely no way. G Gaza has been under blockade. Everything but they get is... the money, you know what I mean. They, they've been getting $30 million a year. Famously, Netanyahu said, a month rather, said it was okay for the, you know, for the Qataris to send it in. 
for humanitarian reasons. But they can't import anything. I mean, you know, Israel, Israel controls everything going in in terms of food aid. I mean, UNRWA, this brings us on to the question of UNRWA. I mean, OK, Hamas rules Gaza. And, and, and in a way, I always sort of saw it as more as a sort of internal jailers for Gaza, frankly. Um, they do rule it internally. They control a lot of the stuff. But in terms of which brings me to the, the, the most important point that everybody has to remember is that nearly all the people in Gaza are refugees from 1948. Yeah. They, people talk now about going home to the north of Gaza. Actually, where they want to go home to is the villages just yeah. across the fence. Yeah. Um, and UNRWA... That's a whole other story. Well, it, it is, but it's related because I don't think you can understand or that anybody can understand the trauma or the way they're reacting as Palestinians, mm -hmm. unless you yeah. know this. They call it, they've called it the, 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 the new Nakba, they've yeah. called it that. But I want to ask you, because this is super important right now, and you mentioned it at the beginning, mm. this, this idea of pushing them out into mm. Egypt. Mm. Well, mm. you know, the Israelis say it's not their mm. aim, the Americans say we won't support that. Mm. The Egyptians have fortified the border mm. militarily. Yeah. They don't want that either. No. It's unlikely to happen, right? It's extremely unlikely to happen as things stand because the Egyptians absolutely won't let them in um, in the current circumstances. Not so much because they don't want to let them in, but because to do so is precisely what will back in 1948. So you let them into Egypt, which is what a lot of Israeli yeah. leaders, by the way, have, have said. said that yeah, we know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, um, and they will never go back. And then you'll just have another set of refugee camps like you've got in Jordan, like you've got in Lebanon, and they'll never be able to return. Mm -hmm. And the Egyptians know that. And the Palestinians themselves don't want to. But my, uh, my understanding and my prediction is unless you know, world leaders, Biden obviously in particular, step up and see what an abomination is going on under his watch. What a horrific slaughter and catastrophe has already gone on. Then, um, then we might have such a humanitarian crisis that the world feels they've got to let them into and, Egypt. And including the new Foreign Secretary, Lord Cameron, has Indeed. told them to be, think very carefully about any next yeah. move. But do you think it's going to have any effect? On, not, on, not on Netanyahu, no. I don't think it will. But I think, I think it, okay. it might have effect on other world leaders, maybe. Sarah Helm, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. That was really interesting on-the-ground information about the survival yeah. of people there. Yeah. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Now, it is no surprise that all eyes are on the U.S. as Joe Biden and Donald Trump vie for the presidency and the most influential job in the world. But what happens when leaders leave the White House? In his new book, Life After Power, former State Department official Jared Cohen takes a look, a close look, at seven past U.S. presidents and the paths they took afterwards. And he's joining Walter Isaacson now to share his key takeaways from their stories. Thank you, Christian and Jared Cohen. Welcome to the show. It's good to be here, Walter. 
you know, in 1797, when George Washington leaves office, I was looking at your book, Life After Power, and I realized that the world wasn't really, didn't have many examples of what happens. I mean, Napoleon hadn't yet gone to Elba. We didn't have the life after power syndrome. Tell me, why did you start writing this book? And what are we looking for when we look about life after power? Look, I've always been interested in this elusive question of what do we do next? And if you think about where we often look for case studies to inform our own transitions, whoever we are and whatever we do, it's usually business executives and it's athletes. We've never looked at the most dramatic retirement in the world where you have the biggest fall from power to just being an ordinary civilian, which is the presidency of the United States. And at a time when we're worried about our democracy, it's important to reflect even before George Washington, the founding fathers were very worried about this question of what to do with ex-presidents because they hadn't really experienced the peaceful transfer of power. So it's quite amusing. You know, Alexander Hamilton in the, in the Federalist Papers, he, he asked the question, does it promote the stability of the Republic to have a half a dozen or so men who'd been elevated to the presidency basically wandering around us like discontented ghosts? And more than 200 plus years later, I think we finally get an answer to Hamilton's question, which is ex-presidents can either be you know, a tremendous partner to their successor or their most formidable adversary. Well, the person who sort of sets the tone right off is George Washington by uh, doing the peaceful transfer of power, stepping down, being Cincinnati, so to speak. How important was that? The, the George Washington precedent of two terms um, is one of the most important decisions that cements this, you know, kind of idea that ex-presidents are meant to kind of leave power and stay out of power. What's interesting is it doesn't get codified until after, after FDR is elected four times with the 22nd Amendment. So just because Washington set the precedent um, doesn't mean it was formally codified as law. And so we kind of winged this uh, from George Washington um, until it was the Constitution w was amended and it pretty much held. Um, you know, it's interesting. We now find ourselves in 2024 in the only time other than 1892 where we are likely to have a rematch between two presidents of the United States who are the nominees of the two major parties. The only other time that it happened was 1892 when Grover Cleveland came back to challenge incumbent Benjamin Harrison. So it gives you a sense of just how off script we've gone from our political evolution. Well, in some ways, the precedent for ex-presidents, the model was set by Thomas Jefferson, who's very interesting chapters in your uh, chapter in your book. Uh, tell me about why what he did after power was so important and so reflected the notion of principle being what you do when you do a next chapter. So one of the things I argue in the book is that Thomas Jefferson was the first former president to make something of his post-presidential years. And each chapter looks at a different ex-president and the specific model that they followed. And what I describe Thomas Jefferson as is he's kind of the quintessential serial entrepreneur or serial founder. He has three things etched on his epitaph that he personally authored, two of which happened before he was president, including the Declaration of Independence and one that he accomplished at 82 years old, which was the father and founder of the University of Virginia. Um, Thomas Jefferson never wanted to be president. He tried to retire three times, but as a co-founder of the Republic, 
he had a founder's obligation to continue to serve in the Republic. And all that did was make him lose time um, and get closer to mortality. He believed very strongly that the Republic that they had founded was imperfect. And if you didn't create a proper institution, an arts and sciences institution to train the next generation, you wouldn't be able to pass the torch to a new cadre of revolutionary minded people who could fix and perfect the mistakes that they made in the Constitution. And so UVA was meant to be that university. And poor Thomas Jefferson, when he opens the doors at 82 years old to the university that he had literally personally architected, um, you know, six months in, you have a group of young students, you know, covering their faces with masks, chanting down with university professors, throwing bags of urine at professors, beating one with their cane. And all it takes is Thomas Jefferson at 82 years old to call an all school assembly before the disciplinary committee that included Jefferson, Madison and Monroe, by the way, the most intimidating disciplinary committee, past, present and future. And for him to exude such a status with these students, one by one, they confessed. And Jefferson remains the only ex-president to create an institution that's now lasted more than 200 years, although every president with their center and their library and their institution hopes to achieve the same thing. Yeah, you've said that Jefferson's uh, principles nowadays in current light, somewhat complex, being scrutinized. And yet, in some ways, as you mentioned in the book, that's Jeffersonian to do that. Look, this may be a controversial thing to say. I think the very idea um, that I, I think Jefferson would have found the very idea that his imperfections and his flaws were criticized by later generations as the norms evolved. I think he would sort of smirk at that and say, I accept that. And in some respects, I view that as an accomplishment because that is core to my principles. And yes, very Jeffersonian. He, he had a, a tremendous self-awareness about the imperfections of his own life and what he and his fellow founders um, had actually architected at the dawn of the Republic. And he had a lot of faith and hope that the next generation um, would fix those problems. And this is why, you know, when his beloved University of Virginia is engulfed in a student riot where they're chanting down with university professors, it's so appalling to him because at 82 years old, there's not a lot of time left. And he wanted to make sure that that institution would survive long enough that he could kind of go out gracefully and be rest assured that the next generation would carry the torch forward. I confess my favorite post-presidency, at least from deep history, is, of course, John Quincy Adams. Totally amazing what he does, including going back to the House of Representatives, but mainly fighting for a particular principle. And that sets the tone for your book, which is that you're your next chapter has to be based on principle. Explain what John Quincy Adams did and why he's so important. Out of all the seven presidents that I wrote, write about in Life After Power, the reason these seven found a greater sense of purpose after the White House is they had a dogmatic sense of and pursuit of what they were principled about. And they doubled down on that in the post-presidency and it's part of what made them successful. In the case of John Quincy Adams, that chapter I call the second act because John Quincy Adams presidency, it's just a one term, was an intermission between two of the greatest acts in American history. The first one architected for him top down and handed to him by his famous parents that set him on a path to being president. Um, and the second act was one that he inadvertently found, which was he went on to serve nine terms in the House of Representatives, where in a much lower station, he found a much higher cause and became the man who mainstreamed what in the 1830s and 1840s 
was a fringe and radical abolitionist movement. John Quincy Adams begins his career appointed by George Washington to serve in his administration. And he dies in 1848 in his ninth term in the House, serving alongside a freshman congressman from Illinois named Abraham Lincoln. So he's this living bridge between multiple generations. And he goes back to the House of Representatives because he's already served every other public position, including in the Senate. So he doesn't know what else to do besides serve. And so he does what any congressman does you know, in the early 1830s, which is you just start reading petitions. And some of those petitions were from abolitionists. And when he saw the reaction of the slaveocracy in Congress, he thought it an affront to the right to petition. And this was the beginning of something that he was so principled about, which was the freedom of speech, the right to petition, and the right to assemble. The angrier the slaveocracy got, the more petitions he presented, the more petitions he presented, the more inundated he was with abolitionist positions. He had not been an abolitionist. Um, and over time, he just sort of wakes up one day and finds himself the leader of this movement. And I believe that the abolitionist movement um, was accelerated a full decade, just in time for Abraham Lincoln to join the House because of John Quincy Adams. We biographers sometimes think it's all about dad. Do you think his abolitionist sentiments came from the fact that his father, John Adams, the second president, had that as part of his core? No, I mean, I think what's interesting is John Quincy Adams talks very little about slavery uh, before he goes into the House. And some of that is a function that in between uh, the Missouri Compromise um, and the time that John Quincy Adams goes into the House in the early 1830s, um, it's just not a hotly debated topic, which again is why the abolitionist, abolitionist movement around that time is more fringy and seen as more radical. And so he, he, he found slavery abhorrent, but it was not a dominant issue during that kind of interregnum. Um, and so this is what I find so prescriptive about John Quincy Adams. We always assume for that great second act you have to know exactly what you wanted to do. Thomas Jefferson knew he wanted to go found a great university. It was the third volume in his life trilogy. John Quincy Adams didn't know what his cause was. He knew what he was principled about, and he submitted himself to those principles, and the cause found him rather than him finding the cause. Uh, one of the post-presidencies I have trouble getting my head around in assessing, of course, is Herbert Hoover. You say he was once a hero, and yet, as I, I didn't know this, I read in his book about how in 1938 he goes and visits Hitler uh, in Germany, uh, yet he does other things that are very useful. How did he end up becoming so much, I guess, more conservative after he leaves office and even uh, setting the ground for appeasement uh, uh, before World War II? Well, look, some of it is, you know, he was, he was a Quaker at heart, so he sort of loathed the idea of war. Um, you know, the, the, the book tells the story of Herbert Hoover, a man who lived to be 90 years old and is basically defined by three and a half years of his life because of the Great Depression. People forget that Herbert Hoover, before he became president of the United States, was known as the great humanitarian. He was the man who fed the world after World War I. He was the man who led relief efforts after the great Mississippi flood of 1927, you know, which affected mostly African-American populations. He was an orphan who became a self-made millionaire. He was known as a, as a great business executive, and he waltzes into the White House in 1928 with a sweeping electoral victory. Um, and he had been courted by Democrats and Republicans alike. So he was a kind of bipartisan figure. And you know, when the Great Depression happens and he loses his bid for reelection in 1932, he loses all that which he had gained in his life. 
and you know feels no regret over his policies over the Great Depression. Um, you know, he believes that FDR has essentially manipulated and duped you know the country into this idea of collectivism, and it breaks the entrepreneurial spirit. He was dogmatic in these beliefs, and so he's in this self-imposed political exile. You know, during the sort of twelve years of FDR's presidency. And he tries to be a great humanitarian again, go to Europe to sort of stop, you know, the, the tide of war. He doesn't intend to meet Hitler, but it, Europe is the one place, um, you know, in the entire world where he goes and streets are named after him. And he's popular because he fed them after starvation, you know, following World War One. And so he goes to Germany to meet with, you know, NGOs and the like, and he gets summoned by Hitler and he becomes the only president. Um, and the only American other than the ambassador who's there with him to meet Adolf Hitler um, at that particular time. And he comes back to the U.S. and, you know, the president doesn't want to read out. He doesn't brief anybody, um, was never summoned to Washington. Um, and just single digit days later, Anschluss happens. Um, and so, you know, it just shows you the disconnect. But then when Harry Truman becomes president after his 82 days as vice president, um, he too knew what it was like to live in FDR's shadow. And there was only one man in the world as they're staring the end of World War II in the face out on the horizon who knew what it was like to be president, knew what it was like to be an FDR shadow and knew how to feed the world. And so he resurrects Herbert Hoover. Uh, Jimmy Carter, I think, has had the longest post-presidency and uh, certainly he's helped redefine the idea of service in a post-presidency. What lessons did you draw from him? So if Herbert Hoover was a story of recovery um, and getting back um, the, the sort of the, 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 the platform that you once had, uh, Jimmy Carter was a different version of that because he too left office in 1981 deeply unpopular. Um, he made a decision that Herbert Hoover did not make, which was you know, the moment he got out of office, he knew he wasn't going to make another run at the presidency. And so as he began what he described as his involuntary retirement, you know, he was a man commanded by deep faith and incredibly principled about this idea that my faith commands me to do whatever I can for as long as I can, whenever I can. And, you know, unshackled from the presidency, he decided to create the former presidency. And he basically built a post-presidential administration that, unlike his presidency, would never end. And he was the first former president to build infrastructure around this idea of being a former and make it a platform in and of itself. And he becomes both a great partner to his successors and a tremendous nuisance to his successors, right? So the two examples of a nuisance are, you know, when George H.W. Bush is getting ready to launch Operation Desert Storm to get Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait, Jimmy Carter secretly writes to several permanent members of the Security Council, you know, trying to advocate them going against the U.S. position. Um, this was, you know, one of the most successful, um, you know, U.N. Security Council moments of collective uh, action not really seen before uh, or after, and Carter is kind of secretly opposing it. Um, or in 1994, when Bill Clinton sends Jimmy Carter uh, to Pyongyang to meet with the leader there, um, he, he knows exactly what Carter's capable of. And so he tells him, you're a messenger. You're not authorized to make policy. And then Bill Clinton turns on CNN and finds Jimmy Carter announcing that he's negotiated a nuclear breakthrough on nonproliferation with the North 
Koreans. So look, Jimmy Carter, you know, represents that Alexander Hamilton, um, you know, the answer to Hamilton's question of being a formidable adversary or nuisance to your successor or being a partner. And at 42 plus years, he's had the longest active, you know, post-presidency. Um, and I think it's ended up being instructive for every successive president that, 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 that's followed. When you look at the lessons in the post-presidencies, what do you what would you hope that Donald Trump could take from that? What lesson should he learn from your book? Look, the number one lesson from the book is anybody making a transition, whether it's to retirement or a micro transition in your life. The sooner you figure out what your core principles are um, and let those principles guide you, um, the sooner you're able to extricate yourself from ego and vanity and lust for power. Um, and so I think it's if you're looking at sort of dangerous power or, you know, you know, discontented ghosts wandering around us, um, those that feel like they lack principles, um, those that feel like they're meandering without principle are oftentimes the most dangerous people um, to have aggregated power. And so, you know, I think what we're seeing right now is, you know, in addition to this being the only time since 1892 where you have a presidential rematch, you also have the two oldest candidates in history eclipsed only by the last time these two same candidates ran against each other four years prior. And you have to ask yourself the question, perhaps we're in this situation that we're in where you have the two oldest candidates, they're less popular than they were four years ago. It's a only once repeated rematch. Maybe we're in this situation because you have two presidents that don't want to give up power. Jared Cohn, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Walter. And finally, this weekend, we learned that a transformative figure in classical music has died. Seiji Osawa, conductor of the Boston Symphony Orchestra for nearly three decades. Osawa galvanized the music world with his extraordinary energy and trademark fashion sense. Astride the podium in Nehru jacket and turtleneck, beads swinging, hair flying, he personified the power of music to build a bridge between Asian and Western music and performers. And he helped ease relations between Washington and Beijing when he led a groundbreaking orchestral tour of China. I got to see Ozawa in action myself in Europe in the early 70s. His brilliance and his dynamic energy left a deep impression. And in 2015, Ozawa was awarded a Kennedy Center honor by President Barack Obama. It was his last trip to the United States. And that is it for now. If you ever miss our show, you can find the latest episode shortly after it airs on our podcast. And remember, you can always catch us online, on our website, and all over social media. Thank you for watching, and goodbye from London. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 